The following message is brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church and Pastor Joshua Ermler. Let's look at Hebrews chapter number 12. We're going to read verses number 23 and 24 for our scripture reading this morning. The Bible says, To the general assembly and church of the firstborn. We saw last week that the firstborn was Jesus, so he's talking to the church of Jesus, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. So we see because of this new covenant that Jesus has ushered in, we are now in a perfect standing before God. And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. We're going to pray. Then pastor is going to come and bring part two of the message, the new covenant. Well, let's dive in here to the part two of the sermon that we've entitled New Covenant. Uh, over the past several weeks, we've been looking at the subject of the new covenant. And so in order to understand what the new covenant was, uh, we took some time to simply unpack what is a covenant in general. It's not a term that we often use in the day and age in which we live. So we took some time to talk about what it is, what, what it is not. And uh, then we took some time a couple weeks ago uh, to unpack the idea of what is the old covenant. What is this old Mosaic covenant of law? What was its purpose? Uh, what did it accomplish? Uh, what were its limitations? Were there things that it couldn't do? And we spent a few weeks just trying to understand what the old covenant was. And now we've been looking at what this new covenant is from a very theological uh, perspective. We're just laying a strong academic foundation from the Word of God so that when we start to make application, uh, when we start to get very practical and relevant, uh, you'll have a strong biblical foundation for where all of these thoughts and principles are coming from. So here's what we've said over the last couple of weeks, just to put this whole series in a nutshell. The Old Covenant was God's way of interacting with the nation of Israel. Uh, the New Covenant is the way God now interacts with his church or the New Testament believers. And so one of the ways we have kind of understood this down throughout history is by understanding that there is an Old Testament to the Bible, but there is also the New Testament of the Bible. And the Old Testament, or what we might say the Old Covenant, sheds light on that framework the new covenant helps us understand how now God engages with his church, how he engages with those who are now in Christ. So uh, one of the reasons we're preaching this particular uh, message series and the reason we've spent some time unpacking it is because in the day and age in which we live, there are many Christians who are living in this quasi pseudo theological position where they are a little bit living like under the new covenant, and then they sort of live under the old covenant as well. And, and they really don't understand how these two covenants, how these two testaments reconcile with one another. And so the average Christian, not every Christian, but the average Christian oftentimes will tend to look at the new covenant as being how we engage to God for salvation. And they will say it's under the new covenant of grace that God gives me salvation and eternal life. But then I've talked with many Christians, and they believe that in order to grow in the Christian life, in order to mature in their Christian life, they have to live under the framework of the Old Covenant or the Old Testament. That is, they have to focus on the law. They have to look at it, fixate on it. 
and then with the best of their ability, try to do what they can to fulfill the letter of the law. And the better they do at it, the better their relationship with God. So there's this quasi-pseudo, partly old covenant, partly new covenant, and there's a real lack of understanding on how these two things work together. And so right now, we're spending some time looking at this new covenant. Last week, we kind of had an introduction, and then we sp- uh, took some time to just kind of unpack understanding the new covenant. So let's go to, let's just call it point number three, since this is, this is a, a message that we continued from last week. And let's look at our third question here in this series, and we'll pick up from last week. Notice here, when did the new covenant actually begin? This is an important question. When did the new covenant actually begin? We know that there was an old covenant, the way that God interacted with the nation of Israel. It is the framework by which much of the Old Testament was given. So when did this new covenant begin? One of the confusing things about understanding when the new covenant began is oftentimes we'll look to the Bible and we'll think to ourselves, the new covenant must have begun at the New Testament. That would make logical sense, would it not? We would say the Old Covenant falls under the Old Testament. The New Covenant would fall under the New Testament. And that is mostly true, all right? But we're going to be a little bit more exact. We're going to be a little bit more focused. And we're going to give you an exact time of when the New Covenant actually began, all right? So let's do this. As we dive into it, as we start to unpack this on a theological, academic level, uh, let's kind of begin a little bit with this thought. Here's what Hebrews chapter number 1 tells us. Hebrews chapter number 10, I should say, and verse number 1. For the law, this old covenant, this old Mosaic covenant of the law, was a shadow of good things to come what good things were to come this new covenant of grace however it's not the very image of the things the old covenant kind of pointed to the new covenant it it was a shadow of the new covenant but it was not the actual new covenant itself so let's begin with looking at when this old covenant of mosaic law if we're going to find out when the new covenant started it might help us to understand when the old covenant ended and that might help us a little bit more know exactly when these things came to pass all right galatians chapter number three verse 24 tells us this the law this old covenant mosaic law was our notice what the bible says our schoolmaster to bring us unto christ all right it's our schoolmaster some might even say it's our guardian that we might be justified by faith all right and so it was the law that was this schoolmaster notice the word here it says until unto we might say christ you see, it was the schoolmaster that brings us until we there had Christ. Let's keep moving on here. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter number 10 and verse number 9, it says, Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. Notice this. He, speaking of Jesus, taketh away the first, this first covenant of law, that he might establish, what? The second, this second covenant of grace. He took away, he did away with the first so that he could then establish the second, all right? 
We could go to 2 Corinthians chapter number 3 where it says that the old covenant is done away in Christ. That's 2 Corinthians chapter number 3. We could look at Hebrews chapter number 8 which talks about how the old covenant has waxed and decayeth away and it, it's vanished. Sometimes during Christ's existence, we'll say that the law was done away with as a means for how God interacts with us as his primary way of interacting with God's people. So when exactly would it be, all right? There are two illustrations that I have personally found as I was working through the New Testament that illustrates when exactly the new covenant came to full fruition. There was the illustration both of a will, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment. We're going to see this from Hebrews. But there is also the illustration of marriage. It's the second illustration that's going to help us, a biblical illustration that will help us understand when the new covenant, when exactly did it take place. All right, so uh, let's, let's have fun for a second. Uh, how, you don't have to raise your hand because this might be a little bit of a personal question. But how many of you have a will? That is, maybe uh, your last will and testament, sometimes it'll be referred to, and you've written your kids, or maybe you've written your grandkids into your will, all right? That's a wonderful thing, all right? And I hope many of us have prepared in that way a formal will. Uh, if you don't have a will, we have several attorneys in the church, and I'm sure that they could help you out getting things, these things up and uh, going here. So we understand the concept of a will. Oftentimes, a will is referred to as a Last will and what? Testament. The last will and testament. Okay, as we saw, the Greek word for the word testament is the same word for the word covenant. So we might be able to say the last will and testament or a last will and covenant. And isn't that what a will is? You're making a covenant with your child. You're saying that when I pass away, this is going to be yours because I love you. Because I care about you. Because I want what's best for you. And so you make a covenant with your child that at the time of your passing, this is going to be yours because I care about you. This is an illustration that the Apostle Paul uses in the book of Hebrews to help us as modern day Christians and specifically these Jews that were coming out of the old covenant into the new covenant. He uses this illustration to help them understand when the new covenant would reap, would come to full fruition. So let's just go right to the Bible on this. I want you to see it for yourselves. Hebrews chapter number nine, verse number 16. Here's what the Bible says. For where a testament is... Where a will is, there must also, of necessity, it's very important that if you're going to have a will, if a will is going to be enacted, there needs by necessity be the death of the testator. You say, I've never heard that word. What is, what is a testator? All right? It's a one who gives a testament. It's one who makes the will. All right? So in order for the will to be enacted, there has to be a death of somebody who's given the will. How many of you would be a little perturbed if your child came to you and said, uh, I want all of what's coming to me in the will right now. You would look at them and you'd say, I'm not even dead yet. Could you at least wait till I've died, you know, to, to, to look into this thing? But he says here, normally, legally, where their testament is, there must also, by necessity, it's important that there be a death of the one who made that testament, the testator. For a testament, a last will and testament, this is the illustration he's using, is a force, it is enacted, notice this, after men are dead. This is when it gets enacted. He goes on to say, otherwise, it is of no strength at all. A will doesn't get enacted until the person's died. That's, that's when the will happens. Your child could not go to the attorney and say, 
hey, I want you to pull out my parents' will. Their last will and testament. You see right there in that writing, it says that it's all mine. I want it right now. He would have no legal standing on which to go from. Why? Because, you, because you're not dead yet. Everybody understands that a will gets enacted the moment the person who made the covenant, who made the will, who made the testament die. It is of no strength at all while the testator, notice this, while he liveth. Okay, so if, if I were to just paraphrase this for a second, because I know this is some ancient language here. If I were to just put everything that the Apostle Paul just stated to the Hebrew children, and I were to put it into kind of just modern vernacular English, it would sound something like this. In the case of a last will and testament... It is necessary to prove the death of the one who made the will. Because a person's will is enacted only when they have died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is still living. That's what what that verse is saying. Okay? Do we understand what's going on? So this new covenant, this last will and testament, when does it start? When the one who created it has died. This is very important to understand, all right? This is very important to kind of, kind of wrap our heads around a little bit, all right? Let's keep reading. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15 says it this way. Notice what it says. For this cause, he, Jesus, is the mediator of this New Testament or this new covenant. Notice this. That by means of miracles, that by means of his ministry, That by means of his birth, that by means of his teachings, no, the new covenant is enacted by means of what? His death. His death. This is when the new covenant begins. It is at means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament that they which are called, might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. So what Paul is saying to the people at Hebrews is this, you Jews, you were under this first testament. You were under this first covenant. But now, Jesus has died and has ushered in. He became the mediator of a brand new covenant. The way you used to interact with God, the way you used to engage God now is different. And you are going to engage him. You're going to experience his salvation. You are going to experience his sanctification. You are going to experience the spiritual maturity that he wants to infuse in your life in an entirely different framework called the new covenant. It is a new covenant of grace. I'll say it this way. The old covenant of law ended when Jesus declared, it is finished. What was finished? The old covenant. It was finished. The way God interacted with the nation of Israel was done. We're going to come back at the very end and see how powerful that statement was based on what happens in Genesis chapter number 15. Okay? Now, this is really important to understand. The old covenant ended with Christ. We saw that in several verses a few moments ago. When did this new covenant of grace begin? It began at the death of Christ. Now, this is very important to understand. I can't unpack all of this right now because we only have so much time. There is good-meaning Christians who misinterpret certain passages early in the New Testament because they don't understand that the division does not happen at Matthew chapter number 1, verse 1. The division doesn't take place until the death of Christ. So technically, some of the 
New Testament passages found early on are still under the umbrella of Old Covenant framework. And so if you are going to interpret those passages properly, you have to interpret them under this umbrella, under the framework as being under the Old Covenant still. It's that, it's that transitionary time. It's easy for us. We can go to the Old Testament and we can say, this is Old Testament. This is Old Covenant. This is under the uh, uh, Old Covenant Testament of law. But now Malachi ends and Matthew begins and, and we must be in the New Testament now. We, we are in the New Testament, therefore we must be in the New Covenant. And not yet quite. This is why much of the Pauline epistles, sometimes people look at the Pauline epistles and some of the teachings you find in some of the early gospels, and they, how, do these, how do these come together? Why? It seems confusing. It is confusing until you understand the new covenant is not enacted until the death of Jesus Christ. That is the dividing point. This is why Paul said, study to show yourselves approved unto God. Uh, rightly, here's the word, dividing the word of truth. There's a proper hermeneutical approach to interpreting old covenant theology and new covenant theology. And you have to understand, it happens at the point of death. If you understand that, how you interpret the word of God will, will become much, much clearer to you. Old covenant, new covenant. And when did the new covenant get enacted? When? The death of Jesus Christ. That is the starting point. Uh, we even, I, I know we're in the year, what, 2016 right now? That, was, that started at the break of history, and, and people use the birth of Jesus Christ as being the center point of history. Biblically and theolo- theo- theologically, honestly, the death of Christ should have been the break point in history. <laughs> it, it, now, I'm not going to argue with our calendar. Let's just keep it, you know. Uh, th- th- we're fine with it. I don't, I don't think we're going to have to, as Christians, try to go and, you know, we're going to do away with the calendar and start a new one. I don't think we need to do that. But authentically, that really is the dividing line in history. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's, that's where this thing took place, all right? So the first illustration was the illustration of a last will and testament to help us understand when this new covenant was enacted. Let me give you a second illustration uh, that we find here uh, in Romans. It's also written by the Apostle Paul. He is, was in Hebrews. He's writing to the Israelites. He was writing to the Jews. Now in Romans, he's going to be writing to the Greeks, but he's still trying to emphasize this same thing. And so he's basically going to use the same thing with them, but he's going to use a different illustration. He's going to use the illustration of marriage. All right, and so basically in Romans chapter number seven, verse number one, uh, if we want to dive into this here, it says, know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law. It says, I'm, I'm going to speak to those of you who kind of get what the law is. You understand this old covenant. How that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. That is, uh, for the woman which hath a husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loose from the law of her husband. Now, let's pause it right there for just a second. So what Paul is now going to do is he's going to dive in and say, if your husband dies, you don't have to stay married to them. You say, well, that's, that makes common sense. So the Apostle Paul is using this illustration. The moment your spouse dies, when he dies, of course you're not going to be married to them. They're dead. And he's using this very common sense illustration to teach something very important about the new covenant. When Jesus Christ died, he's going to teach us that we also died with him. 
We are now dead to the law. We are now no longer married, you could say, to use the metaphor, to the law any longer. As Christ was risen in the resurrection, so we too are going to be raised into newness of life. We're raised into a new relationship. No longer is that relationship to the law. No longer are we married to the law. We are now resurrected to the new covenant of grace. We are now married to Christ to follow the metaphor, which is sometimes why we are referred to as the bride of Christ any longer. And so he begins to use this metaphor of marriage to help us understand that when a old covenant has come to completion, a new covenant is now then enacted. And so we see the illustrations of both the last will and testament. We also see the illustration of marriage. So if the old covenant ended, here's an important question. Does the new covenant also end? That would be a logical question. I want you to see, if you would, Ezekiel chapter number 16 and verse number 60. Ezekiel chapter number 16 and verse number 60. He says this, Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with thee in the days of thy youth. He says, I will, this hasn't happened yet, remember this is still old covenant. It is the prophet Ezekiel prophesying or promising a new covenant. And he says, I will establish unto thee, this new covenant is going to be what? It's going to be what kind of covenant? An everlasting covenant. See, as we saw in the old covenant, it, was, it had an end date. We, we could say it this way. It had an expiration date on it. The new covenant does not have an expiration date on it. It is everlasting. Hebrews chapter number 13 and verse number 20 says this. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the what? Everlasting covenant. Make you, what's the word? It made you perfect. It made you perfect in every good work to do his will. Now, I want you to focus on this for a second. The reason that we can be confident that we have a home in heaven The reason you and I can know for sure that we'll spend all of eternity in the presence of a holy, righteous, and just God is not because while we were on earth, we did our best to attain under the works of the law. The reason that we can be confident that we will one day have a home in heaven in the presence of God for all of eternity, even though he only allows perfection, even though he only allows pure righteousness, even though he only allows pure holiness into his heaven, the reason that we can have access into that heaven is because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross in taking the penalty and punishment of our sin upon himself He took our sin and gave us his perfect righteousness and made us perfect. When the Bible says, be ye holy as I am holy, that is not done by trying your best to attain unto every work of the law. It happens by putting your faith and trust in the finished work of God's grace on your behalf. That is where salvation comes from. But I'll take it even a step further. That is also where your sanctification and spiritual maturity comes from as well. The functional, practical, daily growth 
happens under this new covenant of grace better and more effectively than it does by trying to do it all yourself, focusing on the law, pulling yourself up by the bootstraps and thinking to yourself, all right, I'm going to give it another college try once again today. I know I failed yesterday, and I know I failed the day before, and I know I failed last month and last year and last decade, but this is going to be it today. Now I'm going to do it. And if I just try hard enough, eventually I'll, I'll be holy as God is holy. You'll never make it, my friend. You need the utter perfection of Jesus Christ placed onto the account of your soul. And that is what the new covenant does. It perfects us for salvation, but it also perfects us in sanctification and spiritual maturity. This is why so many Christians struggle with burnout. I've tried to be, I've tried to be a good Christian. And you're tired, and you don't have any energy, and you fail, and you get up, and you fail, and you get up, and you fail, and you get up, because your identity is anchored to your performance rather than anchored to the finished work of Christ and the position that is yours in Jesus. I'm telling you what, a person who lives out of an identity that says, in Christ, I am positionally holy, that person has a huge advantage in functional morality over the person who thinks, all right, I'm going to do this thing myself. There will come a point where your strength will fail. And it will fail again and again and again. I am not preaching a theology of antinomianism that says, go out and do whatever you want. You know, if it feels good, do it. That's not what we're saying. What we are saying is the new covenant of grace empowers you to grow spiritually in a way that the old covenant of law, fixating on the law, focusing on the law, living under this, can never help you. It can't support you. It can't grow you. It doesn't have the capacity to do that. It wasn't what the law was made to do. I'm not saying that morality is bad. I'm saying it's the new covenant of grace and looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. He is the one that gives you the will, the desire, and also the ability to actually do it. I'm saying that the new covenant of grace transforms you in a way that the old covenant of law never could. The old covenant of law can transform your behaviors. The old covenant of law can transform your actions. The old covenant of the law can take you to a place and say, I can do better. But it can't change your heart. It can't make you want to do what you're supposed to do. It doesn't change your values. It doesn't change your motives. It doesn't change your spirit. It doesn't change your attitude. It doesn't change your identity. It doesn't change everything that's actually you. It only changes what people see you to be. The new covenant of grace actually transforms you from the inside out. It makes you want what Jesus wants. It makes you desire what Jesus desires. It makes you to be motivated by the things that motivates the heart of Jesus. It causes you to value the things that Jesus values. It causes you to have the identity of a saint as Christ had the identity of a saint. I'm telling you what, you will go so much further in functional, practical spiritual maturity when you understand that your identity has already been named in Jesus Christ. It is not something you have to work up. It's something that's yours by faith. You say, "How how do I grow in spiritual maturity? The same way you got saved, by grace through faith. 
That's how you got saved. That, my friend, is also how you grow. You recognize God's grace has already given me everything I need to be a spiritual believer. And by faith, I simply believe it to be true. You get sanctified and matured the same way you get saved. By grace, through faith. All right? Which I got ahead of myself. I was answering the question, what did the new covenant accomplish? All right, we're done now, all right? I've reached them both. So what did the new covenant accomplish? What did it accomplish? I'll give you the verses since I, I preached today. We'll, we'll go backwards, all right? I don't normally like to do this, but uh, Hebrews chapter number 10. By the which will we are sanctified, that, is, that means spiritually matured. How are we spiritually matured? Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Do you see the death of Christ there? He, he was an offering. This thing took place at his death. He has, notice this, this is crazy. He has perfected forever them that are sanctified. Can I say this? If you are in Christ, you have been perfected forever. Your identity is sanctified. You say, well, I don't like that. I'm not even preaching. I'm just, I'm just reading verses. For by one offering, the death of Jesus Christ, God hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. You ever felt burdened when you read, be you holy as God is holy? That only those that are holy will inherit eternal life? That crushes you, doesn't it? Until you recognize that Jesus has done it all on your behalf. I love this. This might even be in your notes that we gave you. The new covenant fulfilled the law in us, just not by us. You see the difference? The new covenant fulfilled the law in us, just not by us. You say, who was it by? By the death and blood of Jesus Christ. He has perfected us forever. I love what the cross does. The cross simultaneously reveals God's intense hatred of sin because he is righteous and holy and just, while at the same time reveals his deep love for sinners. You say, Pastor, do you wink at sin? Ah, it's no big deal. You know, God doesn't really care. God cares immensely. In fact, your sin is so just Uh, just abominable to him that he was literally willing to send his very own son to suffer the excruciating death of the cross because he hates that sin so much he doesn't wink at sin he doesn't pretend like it's no big deal it's a massive deal that he damns but it's at the cross that he also says I love the sinners. With outstretched hands on a cross, he says, this, this is how much I loved you. I love you so much it hurts. I love you so much I would literally rather die than live without you. It's the cross that, that bridges the tension of God's holy righteousness and his unconditional 
love. And that's why we sing about at the cross, at the cross, I am free. It's the cross that perfects. It's the cross that makes holy. And when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ did on that cross, we experience both salvation and sanctification. Romans chapter number three says it this way, Romans three, verse 28. Therefore we conclude... After going through all this, what does this mean? We conclude that man is justified by faith in his grace without the deeds of the law. There might be someone in here and you have lived under the heavy weight of the law. You've been told that you need to do this and do that. Go here and go there. You need to walk the walk and talk the talk. And if you go to church enough and if you live good enough, maybe one day you'll get to heaven and your good will outweigh your bad. And and if your good outweighs your bad, then God might wink at you and say, hey, buddy, you made it in. But that's not what the Bible teaches. You see, the reality is this. We're justified. The word justified means just as if I'd never sinned, just as if I'd always obeyed. That's the word justified in his sight. We are justified by faith in the grace of Jesus without the deeds of the law. Good deeds are not the root of salvation. Good deeds are the fruit of authentic salvation. Don't get those mixed up. Because it'll throw your theology into a quandary. We are saved. For by grace are we saved through faith. You say, why, pastor, is it so important that we talk about this? Because many Christians are running around and they're, they're literally living a confused, mixed theology. In order to get saved, I need Jesus. I can't do anything to get saved. There's no works of mine that will attain unto salvation. I need the grace and I receive it by faith. That's how we get saved. But then we go to old covenant theology to grow. We think we got to look at the laws and the principles and we got to focus on them and fixate on them and do our best to try to live unto all of these laws. And, and that's how we grow spiritually. That is a way to try to grow. I'm not saying that's not a philosophy that many people attempt to do. It's just not as effective as the one God's word gave us. And if you've ever tried to live that life, I'm telling you what, you're probably feeling burned out, frustrated, overwhelmed, because it can't be done. The new covenant of grace says, I have a better way for you to spiritually mature. It's a better process. It's a process that's consistent with the new covenant of grace that follows the same pattern of salvation is also a pattern that we can use to spiritually mature. You say, what is that? If you come back next week, we'll unpack the practical, functional, relevant, everyday aspects of new covenant in our daily lives. Because we're not saying, oh, morality's bad and don't do those things. We're just saying the new covenant has a better way for you to mature. That's more effective. 
it actually changes the real parts of who you are, your values, your motives, your ambitions, your desires, your identity. It changes the inside, and then what happens is all of a sudden you're doing what you want to do. Rather than being the type of Christian, well, my pastor told me I was supposed to do this, and my parents told me I was supposed to do that, and my teachers told me I had to do that, and my professors said to do this, and you're doing it, but it, you don't, and God says, I've got a better way. I'm going to change you from the inside out. I'm going to make you want what Jesus wants. I'm going to make you desire what Jesus desires, and that is what the new covenant of grace offers to you as a gift by faith a brand new identity from the inside out come back next week and we'll unpack this much more we are now completely finished with the academic theological foundation of this series all right we're done we took several weeks and i want to say to you thank you thank you thank you for wading through this with us we've gone to lots and lots of scripture passages we've done lots and lots of academic theological foundation for some of this and now over the next couple of weeks we are going to get real practical we're going to get real functional we're going to get real relevant how does this now flesh out monday through friday working with kids at a at my work how do i see the life of christ cultivated through my life in a construct, in a framework of new covenant understanding. And that's what we're going to begin talking about for a couple of weeks as we finish off the series, A New Covenant. If you're here today and you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, God and His Spirit Christ cannot mature you until He lives inside of you until his spirit abides in you. And if you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, that's where it all begins. If you were sitting here and you say, if I were to die today, I'm not sure where I'd spend eternity. I don't know that heaven would be my home. I, I always thought that if I was good enough that I'd, you know, that I'd, I'd probably end up making it. And, and what I'm hearing today from the Bible doesn't seem to match that, that paradigm, that perspective. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, if you don't have a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, I want nothing more than the opportunity to show you from God's Word how you can be 100% sure that heaven would be your home. To show you from the Bible how you can express faith in the grace of Jesus Christ offered to you because of Jesus' death, His burial, and resurrection. Your sin and my sin has consequences. And either you and I will pay the consequences for those sins, or we by faith will accept the pardon that Jesus Christ offers to us as a free gift. Somebody will take the consequences. And I want to offer you that gift from the word of God of eternal life a relationship with God, not because of works of righteousness, which you have done because the Bible says those can't save you, but by his mercy that we experience by faith, by simply believing that it's true. If you've never been saved, if you've never committed your life to God through his son Jesus Christ, what a wonderful opportunity you would have today to receive Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. In a moment, we're going to have some time for prayer and reflection. I'm going to be right here up front. If you would like, I'd encourage you, you can come up and I'll pray with you. I'd love to show you from the Bible what it says about how you can know for sure you have this relationship. If you wouldn't feel comfortable with that, I'll be in the lobby. Get a publication. Send me an email. I'd love to set up and have an opportunity over coffee to show you from the Bible 
what God's word says about how you can commit your life to Jesus Christ. Last Sunday night, I had the opportunity of, of getting with somebody who was in this room and they asked that exact question. I had the opportunity of really showing them from the Bible how they could know for sure that heaven would be home, their home. And you know what? We would want nothing more than to have that opportunity with you. Give me, one of our pastors, one of our leaders here, the opportunity to show you from the Bible how you can have a home in heaven for all of eternity. How you can start on this journey that you've been trying to do again and again and feel like you've failed and gotten back up and failed and got back up. I'm going to show you the, the power behind the Christian life, and that's Jesus. The life of Jesus doing for you what you cannot do on your own. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church. If this message was a blessing to you, please consider leaving us a review or sharing the message on social media. Thanks once again for tuning in.